This is Power Players with Dan Clark. This is a podcast interview with resiliency expert and global influencer Amberly Lago. Welcome to Power Players with Dan Clark, former athlete, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and high performance business coach. Where each week I bring you an inspiring message from an extraordinary human being who will share their secrets on how you can tap into your personal power and become everything you were born to be. Thanks for spending some time with me today. In this episode, my dear friend Amberly Lago, professional dancer, athlete, expert in the fields of transformation, health, wellness, and recovery, best-selling author of True Grit and Grace, and host of her fiercely popular podcast by the same name, shares her life and story of triumph over tragedy, being abused as a child, eventually succeeding as a professional dancer and model and fitness guru, only to have her life shattered in a horrific motorcycle accident, giving us an inside glimpse into the mind and heart of someone who, with faith and tenacity, has become one of the top 1% podcasters in the world and an in-demand inspirational speaker. Hi, it's Dan with Power Players with Dan Clark. And today, you got to pull out a pad and paper. You got to, you got to hook on your seatbelt, but you got to kick off your shoes. Make sure you're comfortable and ready to connect your head with your heart, because today's guest is one of my favorite human beings on the planet. You know, it's crazy how there's billions of people on this Mother Earth, and as a professional speaker. Uh, slash entertainer. I interact with so many people, over 6 million people. My audience is 6,000 speeches in 73 countries. And yet there's only those select individuals that you actually connect with in a perfect chemistry way that are instantaneous friends that become lifelong friends. And today we're talking to one of my dear friends. And if you added up the number of minutes that we've actually spent together shoulder to shoulder in the same room, laughing, crying. It hasn't been probably more than just, you know, three days counting our secret knot experience that the, the, the giant mastermind experience that Greg Reed, our, our dear friend hosts in San Diego. But Amberly, Amberly Lago, I love the name. I, I think it's Portuguese for awesome woman. And in a, in, in a snapshot, Amberly Lago is a leading expert in the field of resilience, transformation, and health and wellness. And here's why. She's the best-selling author of her best-selling book, True Grit and Grace. You can see the lights flashing behind her. And if you itemized each one of those words, true, which is authenticity, grit, it's that tenacity to get back up and go again. And it's living life with the social graces of please and thank you and sophisticated elegance and polished professional. I think whoever coached her in coming up with that title of her podcast, that title of her best-selling book was inspired by the divine. Um, Amberly empowers people around the world by sharing her story of how she turned a tragedy into triumph. And she's a former professional dancer you know, my wife, my daughters, they relate to her and her story so well. And she's actually an athlete, not just a former athlete, but a current athlete, bringing a new perspective on what it takes to truly persevere. 
Ladies and gentlemen, my friends, please welcome to this episode, just a dear friend, a fast friend, but a, just a, an extraordinary human being, uh, Amberly Lago. You grace me with your presence, my dear friend. Oh my goodness, Dan, I love you. That is the best introduction I have ever had. Well, I just well, want to just hang out with you all the time. And so I'm so grateful to be here, um, especially um, on your show. I am so honored. I listened to your show. You've had some of my favorite people on your show. Um, our friend, Amy Purdy. Um, oh, so many amazing people. So I am truly honored to be here and get to talk with you. So thank, thank you, you for having and me. Again, I thank you for having me on your podcast. That was an honor. Oh, can I tell you something? Yeah, please. Did you know, I have to just tell you this, your episode is the most downloaded episode of True Grit and Grace yet. I'm not kidding you. I just had to share that with you. Thanks. Yeah, way to get me crying at the beginning of our interview. (laughs) So, you know, when you, um, when you have a chance to meet someone who's a mentor like Amberly is to me and a hero in so many ways and inspiration at so many levels. You, you, you probably, you know, with my twisted sense of humor, I should have awakened earlier and put on some makeup and curled my hair and, you know, gone to the gym and lost, you know, 13 pounds, you know, got liposuction and tummy, maybe a facelift just to be in an appropriate mood for this interview. But I decided to tap into my son-in-law's company, uh, mantra, if you will, 8760. It's the hat and the matching shirt. You're looking sharp. That the, that it, it reminds us of the, of the number of hours in a year. And every single time I, I interact with you, Amberly, every time I hear you speak, you remind us that no matter what your past has been, you have a spotless future. You're the most in the present moment person I've ever been around where you meet you know, thousands of people in your, in your speaking and your engagements. But in that moment, no matter how many people are in line to greet you and thank you and buy your book, you only have eyes for the person in front of you. That's more than a talent, girl. That's so extraordinary. Oh, and so I decided to just wear a ball cap instead of just coming out with my hairdo. But I wanted to just say to the audience that in case you see my tooth missing, I was speaking in San Diego, and prior to my speech, I had, you know, crunched something in my mouth, and and it really hurt, but then my tooth fell out in the middle of my speech, and so I raced home, and I went to the dentist, and he, you know, he extracted my tooth, did a bone graft, blah, 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 and so my tooth's missing, and I've been on the program so many times, Amberly, with people who would say, I can't do it. My tooth fell out. I can't, I can't go on stage. My tooth fell out. I, I can't be in front of a camera. I can't do a photo shoot. I'm going to cancel everything. I volunteered at the primary children's hospital here at the University of Utah campus two days a week. And I remember the first time I went, you know, I've broken my neck. I've broken my back, my knees, seven surgeries on different knees. And I was in so much pain. I was walking up and down the stairs, refusing to take the elevator. And finally, I complained. I'm leaning over. And I said to my wife, I, my back hurts so bad. I have the biggest knot. My knees are killing me. Ah, this is so bad. And then we go into the theater for this little fellowshipping meeting and these mothers and fathers bringing their sick children. And this little 13-year-old is pushing her own 
you know, I, I, IV tower, bald head, lost it through chemotherapy and radiation treatment. And I started to weep, Amberly, and I realized I have no right to ever complain again. Mm. So regardless of how goofy I might look with a tooth missing. Well, I didn't even point, notice. Well, thanks, but I wanted to make sure. But I wanted to make a point because as we dive into your life, as we dive into your, your, your life pre-injury, post-injury, people need to understand that true grit and grace is so much more than just a beautiful soul with a smile and a book. You absolutely embody resilience and perseverance with grit and grace. And that was a long introduction before I even asked you the first question, but people need to understand that when you're around Amberly Lago, you leave saying, I like me best when I'm with you. I want to see you again. But you absolutely can never, ever again make an excuse for anything as you take the stage, usually dancing and, and generating so much energy in the room and use, usually in a beautiful high fashion skirt to unashamedly expose the scar on your leg from this horrific motorcycle accident, which basically says, big deal, here we go, strap it on. You ever feel sorry for yourself again? I will, I will, I will reach over there and slap you with your Southern draw. So way too much of me. Amberly, take us into your childhood. Take us into how you grew up. And I want to know at what point in your life did you realize you had true grit and grace? Because adversity is what introduces us to ourselves. No one will ever know how strong we are until being strong is our only choice. So take us back as far as you want. And then hopefully you can take a moment to identify when you really believe that you learned resiliency, when you really learned the significance of persevering. Ladies and gentlemen, Amberly Lago. Oh, well, Dan, you know, first of all, you're my favorite speaker in the world. And I always say that because it's true. So I could just listen to you so all day, especially you're so when you're talking about me, you know. <laughs> But um, yeah, you know, I, I think that you and I grew up a lot alike in that we were both athletes. Um, I, we didn't have a lot of, I, although I don't know how you grew up um, as far as like, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, my mom had five kids. She worked two jobs. If we wanted something that we had to work for it. So I started working at age eight babysitting um, at age 13. I was teaching dance. By the time I was in high school, I was a lifeguard. I was scrubbing toilets. I had a job at a little cookie store and teaching dance full-time. So I would get out of school early so I could go to the dance studio. And because I knew I had these big dreams, I come from this really small town and I grew up in um, a not so safe home. There was, um, sexual abuse from my stepfather, my older brother, you know, we're friends now, but he used to use me as a punching bag. He has actually apologized since, but not the kind of shoving and horsing around kind, like the kind where he would 
punch me in the face with his fist and he's six, four. And so I grew up having to fend for myself and having to be tough or else it, I was on survival mode. And I knew from a very young age, I was like, I am getting the heck out of Dodge. Like this is not safe. Um, going to LA to be a professional dancer that seemed you know, some people are, would have been scared to go to LA to try to become a professional dancer. I was like, you know, I feel like pain pushes you and vision pulls you. Well, the pain of being home was like, this is not safe. It's, it's crazy here. And my vision pulled me. And so I, you know, saved up $1,200, moved to LA. And I say ignorance is bliss. I had no idea that I was not a very good dancer. I was for the small town that I was in. But when I got to LA, um, I knew that I had saved up enough money to take dance classes for a month before there was a big audition for scholarship. And it was my goal to try to get on scholarship at this dance studio. Now I made straight A's. I was a go-getter and overachiever. That was my kind of my default, um, for escaping the pain and abuse and stuff like that at home, I spent my time really involved in school getting straight A's. So although I had this partial scholarship to UCLA, that was never really my plan A. That was maybe maybe on the back burner, but I wanted this dance scholarship. Lo and behold, I think they put took pity on me. I was the worst one, but they let me on scholarship. I, because I was the worst, had to take the most dance classes and was required to take the most ballet classes than any other person on scholarship. And so I think that being an athlete taught me grit, you know, running track when I was in, you know, eighth grade and my coach yelling at me, get off the track if you're going to throw up and keep running. Uh And then my dance teacher, like, I don't care if your toes are bleeding, the show must go on. Do you want your understudy to take the job? You need to push through the pain. And then moving to LA and becoming a dancer, it was like, okay, I'm not as good as the rest. So I'm going to have to work twice as hard. So that's where I learned grit and I, um, you know, within the first two weeks I got to LA, I had four jobs, two waitressing jobs and two jobs teaching at two different dance studios. I didn't have parents that were like, oh, let us take you to LA and find you a cute little apartment and buy you some furniture and take you to Ikea and get you some towels. It was like, good luck. And my stepmom was like, I think you're making a big mistake. So I didn't have a lot of support. In fact, I had a lot of doubters, Mm. Um, but I believed in my vision. And I knew that if I just worked hard enough and if I did it with kindness and I kept focus on where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do, and I did everything I could to get there, that eventually my dreams would come true. And guess what? I got an agent Um, My very first dance gig was with MC Hammer and Can't Touch This. I got to travel the world. I used to go to Japan twice a year on tour with a company. I mean, I thought, Dan, I thought I get paid to do what I love. And so I think it surprises people sometimes now when I get out on stage and they don't know that I used to be a dancer and I start doing some crazy dance moves. They're like, Ooh, what's that old lady doing up there? (laughs) So let me, let me 
let me reflect on an experience I had. So I had a dear, dear friend who's six, six, all American basketball player. And I was an all American football player. We used to go out, he was an African-American and we'd go out as salt and pepper, you know, the two seasoned vets as professional speakers. And he asked me to, to listen to his speech one day and give him some evaluation back in the early days when we became friends and professional colleagues. And he told the story of going to kindergarten. He had a speech impediment, stuttered badly. And in his first day of kindergarten, he left school early and ran all the way home. And, and then he jumped right to, you know, playing basketball and scholarship. And now he's this Hall of Fame professional speaker. And he asked me, hey, Clark, give me some feedback. And I said, wait a minute, you left out so much information. What did your mom say to you when you ran home from kindergarten early? What did you do in your life to overcome this speech impediment? What is your rebound rate? We all have arguments with our spouses and significant others. What's the rebound rate? How fast can you put your pride in your pocket and have a heart-to-heart -heart communication and a, and a talk? So I'm taking you deeper, girl. I want to know when, when you're getting beat up by your brother and, and there's just so much of a, of a feeling of unsafe and, and I don't even want to use any other adjectives that are on my mind. How did you keep getting back up and going again? Grit is tenacity when you don't have that support from others. And I'm just asking you this deeper question to try and connect the dots of the steps of resiliency. You know, how do you get back up and go again? I mean, it's, I was a boxer. Somebody punches me in the face and I go down. I got to get back up and go again because that's the culture. Mm -hmm. and, and I was a boxer. Yeah, and you didn't have a, that culture so teach us all, what allowed you to just keep getting back up and going again? Well, I will say, you know, sometimes when you're going through a really crappy experience, a hard challenge, adversity, trauma, or like me, physically and sexually abused, which I don't wish upon anyone, you, you can't see that there's any good in it. But actually looking back at a lot of those moments, there, there were definitely some blessings in those moments. So getting beat up, I learned number one, um, no one was going to rescue me. Like I had to rescue myself. I had to show up for myself. So I would try to fight as hard as I could. I would always get back up. And I remember running towards my brother, like arms flailing, ready to just, you know, kick his butt. And he would just giggle pick me up and throw me across the room. I would hit the wall, go sliding down and I would get up and run towards him again. And then there were times where, you know, he busted me in the mouth and I had braces and there was blood everywhere. And I, I my response was, I'm going to tell mom, you know, and he thought maybe he would get in trouble, but my mom, I mean, she was really busy with work. My dad wasn't around. Um, my parents did the best they could with what they had, you know? Um, and so I learned to take care of myself. I took boxing, uh, classes. Um, when I got older, I took Krav Maga. Um, I've got a belt in Krav Maga. I did Muay Thai and I started going to the gym and getting stronger. So I thought about, well, what can I do? Cause I was so small. Um, and then also I did things that would, 
this might sound kind of cheesy, but I did what made me feel good, what made me happy. And so there, like I said, there was so much pain and it felt so unsafe at home. And I think it's so important for kids to have an outlet. And luckily my outlet was athletics and dance. And so I became the fastest runner in track. I set a world or a state record in Texas, which has long been broken since I'm sure. But back then it was a big deal. I became the fastest runner. I became really good at sports and the best dancer at my studio because maybe looking back, maybe that's what I could do that was good. And it made me feel good, but it also was safe to me. Um, it wasn't safe being at home, being at the dance studio was safe, being at school was safe. And so I did what I could. And I always think, you know, um, in those moments, I did reach out for help. So it took a lot of courage. So going to like the sexual abuse part, that took a lot of courage when you're, when you're sexually abused, usually the abuser makes you feel like it's your fault. Like you're bad. You're the one to blame. You're, you're just, you're dirty. You're worthless. You're all the, the worst feelings of shame. And my stepdad told me that he would kill my mom if I told her or anyone and I believed him. I mean, I was eight years old and it went on and on and finally got to the point where I was like, I can't live like, I mean, a little kid thinking I can't live like this. It's I can't, you know, and I went and told my dad and I said, dad, you can't tell anybody, but this, and it, I remember that took so much courage and he didn't do anything about it. And even that was a blessing. Now, Dan, I know what kind of dad you are. You're an incredible dad. And my dad is a really good dad. And that was probably the hardest thing to write about in my book, because I didn't want to make anybody feel bad. I wasn't writing about that to make my dad look bad or make my mom look bad or anything like that. I, I wrote about it so that people will know that you don't have to walk around feeling shame and you can hold your head up high with dignity and grace. And you can still go on to have a joyful, abundant life with a loving husband and children, and you can break those abusive cycles. Um, but it was hard to write about, but it did heal my relationship with my dad. But at that moment when he didn't do anything, it was really a gift to me because it taught me, well, I am, once again, I'm going to have to really take care of myself. I'm going to have to get stronger. And you know what I did, Dan? The next time that my stepdad came in my room, I kicked him and I hit him and I punched him as hard as I could. And the look on his face, that was the last time he ever touched me again. Very, very, very powerful story. So how many people, what, what little town did you grow up in in Texas? Um, well, Greenville, Texas. And so it's pretty wild that I just moved back to Texas and I'm about 30 minutes from the town that I grew up in. I couldn't quite move back to that town, but I'm about 30 miles away. How many people were there when you grew up? Um, I think there were about 12,000. There's a lot more now. The town I'm in now has 7,400 which is crazy compared to well, they miss you today. They're looking around like, where's Amberly? You know, we hate it when she goes downtown. We hate it when she goes inside her house. So the point is 
it's not the size of the dog in the fight what matters is the size of the fight inside. It's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight inside the dog. So it's not about the size of the town, it's about the size of the dream and about escaping and controlling what you can control and not worrying about what you cannot control and being being your own person, the, the rebound rate, that nobody's there to rescue you. I love that. So take us to, take us to LA, take us from making your dreams come true out on the world tour, doing your dance thing, and obviously throwing some modeling in there because in LA, there's a lot of crazy folks, but they're, they're not blind. So obviously uh, you, were, you were doing that as well. So take us from where you left us off to, to what your life was like when you decided that you were gonna be a Harley chick and, uh, and get yourself a motorcycle. Well, I have always loved motorcycles. I grew up on dirt bikes. And so I remember um, when I was dancing and I did part-time, I'd be like an extra work for extra money and movie on movies and stuff like that. And so I met this one producer and he was roommates with uh, Dean Kane, who used to play Superman. I know. Yeah. And so he invited me to go motorcycle riding and I was like, yeah, uh, but I don't want to ride on the back of a bike. I want a, my own bike. And he goes, whatever. And so I went. I ain't no hugger, Clark. I ain't no hugger. I want my own bike. I want my own. So <laughs> I went and, you know, I had my class M1 license and I went and bought a motorcycle and they were surprised when I actually showed up at their house next time, ready to ride, but with my own bike. And so we rode together. Um, then I had my, you know, started really getting into the fitness and working full time and had my uh, first daughter didn't ride motorcycles as much. Cause I was like, Oh, that's, it's too dangerous. I'm a mom now. Um, but it's funny. My husband, and I got married and he was, um, he's retired, but he was a chippy with the highway patrol, a Lieutenant commander. But when I met him, he was a Sergeant and head of the chippies and What's he a, chippy? Had a chippy is what did you ever What's watch chips? Yeah, of course. I have a great picture with, with one of the two guys. Come on, girl. I know all about it I'm for our listeners, for our viewers. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he is just like the California movie. highway patrol. Yes. California highway patrol. And when I first met him, he was on a Texas chopper and I was like, okay, well I like, he's riding a Texas chopper. He, I, I think I'll go out with him. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, I ended up getting another motorcycle and we used to ride and, you know, that's what we did for fun. But I was really in, the really thinking, gosh, I'd gone through some, a couple of failed marriages. I had lived through a lot of, you know, injuries and stuff in the dance industry and dance industry is pretty tough. It's pretty cutthroat, but I, I really loved it. I, I really enjoyed it. I knew I wanted to retire from that at a young age. I knew I had this idea at 25, I'm going to retire from being a dancer and do my next thing. And that's when I got into the fitness industry and I had a successful career in the fitness industry. I mean, I was doing infomercials, uh, fitness videos, shape magazine. I was 
it was crazy. I would go into like Rite Aid or CVS and I would see my picture on like vitamin labels and stuff like that. And so I was really at the height of my career. And I was saying, man, I finally made it like life is good. I got a good husband. I've got two healthy daughters and man, that's when everything changed in the blink of an eye when I had my motorcycle accident. So take us to that day to what we were doing and what happened when you got hit. Well, that day it was a holiday weekend and it was a Friday and I had just ran in my best time. And for the first time I beat my workout partner and he was so competitive. And I was like, yes, I ran 11 miles and I beat him and I had trained clients and I was just like feeling good. And I jumped on my motorcycle and one of my friends was walking out and she said, be careful. I'm like, yeah, I will. And, you know, get on. And I remember taking the long way home because I thought, I just want to feel the wind through my hair and the sunshine on my face a little bit longer. So I'm going to take a little bit longer way home. And as a, you know, when you're on a motorcycle, you drive very defensively. So you're constantly looking to make sure other people see you. And I look and I was like, okay, that guy sees me. And then I thought, oh my gosh, he either, I, I, I was like, I guess he doesn't see me. I don't know. Um, he punched it out of a parking lot, made a left. And it wasn't like he kind of scooted out. He punched it out. And all I could do was let go of the clutch, try to jump off my bike, but it was too late. He T-boned me. I was thrown about 30 feet and then I'm sliding across the asphalt. And all I can think is, please just don't let another car hit me because I couldn't tell what I was sliding into. And I was on a busy street. I was on Ventura Boulevard and I finally came to a stop and I looked down at my leg and it was just crumbled into pieces. And it's crazy to look down at your body and see it just completely deformed. My foot was off of my leg. There was blood everywhere. I didn't know at the time, but my femoral artery was severed. I had a guy who he's, I wish I knew who this guy was to this day. I don't know who he is, but he was a guardian angel. I swear, because he came over right away and ripped off his belt, made a tourniquet on my leg. So he really saved my life, saved me from bleeding out the paramedics talk about everything being exactly the right timing, exactly the right place um, at the right time. The paramedics were already running to me. They saw and heard it happen before they even got the call. Guys were running with their bags um, before the fire truck could even turn around from the little coffee bean store and get to me. I was only about five minutes from home. So my husband, um, drove the wrong way, like on the wrong side of the road, um, all the way he was home waiting for me to get home to get to me. So he got there really quick and they, they, I knew it was serious. I had no idea how serious it was, but when I got in the back of the ambulance, I thought, "Uh Oh, I might be dying because yes, the pain was like nothing I'd ever felt, but I was squeezing the paramedic's leg and I was trying to get some sort of like eye contact or reaction. Like, am I okay? 
we good? Am I going to make it? And he wouldn't look at me. And I thought, oh, wow, this is so bad that he's not even looking at me. Then they start trying to cut my jacket off. And it was a brand new hot pink Lululemon jacket. And I'm like, no, 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 don't cut that off. This yeah. is new. I, got, I can slip this thing off. So I'm sure they are probably looking at me like, this chick is crazy. She's dying and she's worried about her jacket. Then they start putting an IV and I'm like, whoa, whoa, hold up. What are you giving me in that IV? And they're like morphine. I said, you can't give me morphine because I'm allergic. I'll go into anaphylactic shock. And they're like, that's all we have. And I was at that point thinking, well, maybe I do want to go into anaphylactic shock because this is just way too painful. Anyway, I got to the hospital and because the brotherhood and sisterhood of the police force is like, it's like family. One person goes down and everybody knows about it. It was the, the ER was filled with cops and it was chaotic. Dan, my husband, I had, he's a big, tough guy. I had never seen him cry. He was hysterical running back and forth. I'm taped to the gurney and I can only hear this loud wailing. And I yell across the room, Johnny, I need you to get over here and be strong for me. Because at that moment, I didn't know if I was going to wake up or if I was dying. Um, And I wanted to know that he was going to be able to take care of our kids. And he came over and he held my hand. And that's the last thing I remember before they put me in induced coma. Wow. So I wish we could, you know, flash a a picture up on the screen for everyone to see, but I think you've painted a word picture. It's a, it's an unbelievable accident. So take us from when you came out of your very first surgery, how many total surgeries did you have? You know, give us the, the details of the, you know, the plastic surgery, the grass, whatever they had to do to, to give you the strength for you to continually dance and, and fill every room and every aisle and every space with joy and, and, and you know, happiness. You I mean, oh. you would even notice that you even had surgery, that you even had an injury, unless you, you know, one of your, wear one of your famous skirts that, that kind of showcases your story. Talk to us. Well, I'm, I'm chuckling right now because I just did this Facebook post and I just saw a comment on it. So I was in a, uh, like a address and everybody had commented on it. And mostly it's people who know me, but there was, I guess, a young guy who didn't know me and he comments on there. Yeah. But did anybody notice her calf? And he did like this crazy looking face, like a, like a grossed out face. And I said, and I wrote back, it just, it really made me chuckle. And I wrote back. I sure hope so. Cause it only took 34 surgeries to make it look that good. Cause yeah. you know, I mean, it, it took, I woke up from a coma and the first thing I learned was they said, you've got a 1% chance of saving your leg. And my first thought was, okay, so there's still a chance kind of like dumb and dumber. So there's still a chance. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, there's still a chance. And we, you know, it took an act of God to get me transferred to a different hospital for find a doctor that was willing to take that chance with me. I had an amazing 
bunch of doctors, Dr. Wiss, he's retired now, but I used to threaten him. I'm like, you better not retire because if I need you, I'm going to go find you on that fishing boat. <laughs> I'm going to hunt you down. Um, but I had an amazing team of doctors, surgery after surgery, 34 in total months in the hospital. I went from being this elite athlete to being covered in bed sores and losing 20 pounds of muscle when I was already at 12% body fat. And I really looked like I'd been through a war. They took the skin from my upper leg and did skin grafts to put it on my lower leg. They did a skin graft um, and skin muscle flap and moved my calf to the front part of my leg. And I always, you know, kind of was self-conscious of my big calves. Like I, as a ballet dancer, I had really big calves. Let me tell you, I was so grateful that I had big calves because the doctor was like, we're going to have to do a muscle graph. Now we're going to try to use your calf, but if it's not big enough, we're going to have to use a muscle from your back. And my thought was, that calf has got to be big enough. I've got some big old cows down there. So you don't touch my back. You just use that calf. And so it, it was really a journey, but I have to say, you know, 34 surgeries was hard, but when I really learned about resilience and grit was being diagnosed as a result of the accident um, with complex regional pain syndrome, which is dubbed the suicide disease. So here I thought, oh, things are just going to get better. I'm going to get stronger. I'm going to be able to run again. I'm going to be able to get back to my life as a trainer and all these things, even though, you know, it hadn't fully set in the way that I looked and how my leg is deformed and my ankles fused and it's metal from my toes all the way up. Um, being diagnosed with CRPS was really when I felt like I was got kicked in the gut. I mean, to be told you're never going to get better. You need to go get back in your wheelchair. Your life will never be the same. You're going to be permanently disabled. You'll never work again. You'll probably have to wear orthopedic shoes. And I was just kind of like, well, I am never wearing orthopedic shoes, first of all. <laughs> I'm kidding. I actually do wear them sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, I was just like, that can't be my life. That just can't be. So I went from denial into hitting rock bottom and having to be really through sheer desperation forced into acceptance before I could start on this healing journey and transformation and do a lot of soul searching and connecting to my higher power and building my resilience and grit more and learning how to give myself grace because I was so hard on myself. Like I just got to go and push through the pain. Well, I had to learn to listen to my body. I had to learn to listen to my heart, my intuition, um, so it's been quite the journey. Um, and, and I think that a lot of people can relate because pain's pain, you know, we all have pain, whether it's chronic pain, physical pain, you know, emotional pain and pain demands to be heard. And I feel like, you know, pain is an indicator and it's, doesn't mean that we have to stop doing what we love. It doesn't mean that we have to suffer. It just is an indicator to ask ourselves a question. 
what do we need to learn? How do we need to grow? What do we need to do next? Mm -hmm. And not why me, but what's next? I love it. So you remind me of classic lines that I've used or coined for years, you know, in medicine, prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. So we've been trained to ask the right questions to get better answers. And when we go into a doctor's office, to your point, usually we only go into a doctor's office when we're in pain instead of finding the prevention side of nutrition and health and, and uh, whatever else we can do to prevent. We used to go to a doctor's office when we're in pain and through the question and answering session, sometimes they don't ask the right questions. And so my point is we have to scratch where it itches. Every time I'm around you, you remind me of these, these prolific answers that simplify our resilience, that simplify our desire to persevere. So scratch where it itches. So classic example, uh, I remember when I blew out my knee, be a big boy, don't cry, be tough. I toughed it out until, until the limp became so brutal and painful that it created back pain. Mm -hmm. And finally, when the back pain got so excruciating, what did I do? I broke down and went to a back doctor and he couldn't fix anything because it was not a back injury. It was a knee injury. So we have to go where that pain is, scratch where it itches. The other thing you always remind me about is every time I've been injured, every time you've been injured, you know, as I said, I've broken my neck, my back, had my head sewn up 11 times, had two hernias. <clears throat> That's funny. <laughs> her knees. But every single time I injured my body, if I went through the, the complete process of rehabilitation, every single part of my body that was injured became stronger than it was before I injured it. Mm -hmm. And that also applies to our heart, to our shattered dreams, our broken hearts, our, our emotional stability. And you are the epitome of grace and grit, you know, your attitude of gratitude. So take, take us into how you're able to isolate different parts of your life that happen to, that happen to uh, engage in pain at that moment. In other words, physical, but how about mental? How about confidence? How about spiritual? How about emotional stability? How about family? You know, you are the complete, you are complete. And yet, if we can't compartmentalize our pain and compartmentalize our lives, we wake up and think the whole sky is falling. You know, it's the chicken. Mm -hmm. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. My life sucks. And you say, no, it's no, it doesn't. Let's itemize what part of your life is, is, is forcing you to struggle at the moment. And then let's scratch where it itches. And I got that from your 60 minute keynote. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what's going on in your life, in your words, you basically said, you can stop and pause and fix it, scratch where it itches, and then move on to the next point and to the next point. Take us to that mindset, my girlfriend. You are so, you are such an expert in this. I'm trying to milk it out for everybody else because sometimes in 60 minutes, you just have to scathe over the top of all these deeper answers and formulas, but I know they're in there, my friend. I know they're in there. Teach us. Well, you know, it was at the point where I was out of work for a year and a half and I was the main breadwinner. How old were you, by the way? How old were you when you had your, uh, your accident and then 34 Thir took you over how long of a period of time? I was 38 and for, gosh, almost six years, I was in and out of the hospital. Um, but for the first 
two years, I was in and out of the hospital the most, I would say, but I had, oh gosh, $2.9 million worth of medical expenses. We now had a lien on our house. Um, my husband was trying to hold it together. Um, he was working. We had a two-year-old and a teenager. Um, I am now looking down at myself with disgust. I hate the way I look. I hate myself. I hate the pain that my leg gives me. I am just becoming this bitter, not, not grateful person at all. Um, I started creating habits that did not serve me. Um, you know, we create these habits and then these habits create us. And this habit that I had created was not very pretty. I couldn't get out of pain. See, I was trying all these different things. I was doing ketamine infusions that were $2,000 a pop at UCLA. I had Eastern Western medicine. I had spinal stimulators, spinal radio frequency where they go in and they burn your spinal, they, your nerves and your spine. And they, I did, they didn't tell me the first doctor that that could cause you to go paralyzed, but I was desperate to get out of pain and anybody or anything that said we can get, you know, anything that said we can, this will get you out of pain. Or this person would say, I can get you out of pain. I was like, okay, what do I need to do? And nothing was working. And so I started drinking and I thought, wow, this wine kind of helps. And I was never a drinker. I was one of those people that, you know, while in college, college kids partying, I was the bartender collecting their tips, you know? And so now all of a sudden it was, I was drinking every day and I thought, well, this isn't the healthiest thing, but if it's what I have to do to get through the pain, I guess I'll have to do it. Well, I spiraled down quick as I became addicted to drinking. And that has really been a gift because it forced me into a place where I had a choice. I was really to a point where I was thinking, I don't want to live anymore, but I'm, I'm too scared to die, too scared to take my own life, but I don't want to live anymore. And I'm thinking my you know, my husband can find a better wife, another wife, he could find another mom, someone to take care of the kids. And, and then I thought, no, there's got to be more to life than this. And that's when I got on my knees and prayed and said, please help me. And at that moment, um, it allowed me the courage, enough courage to ask one of my former clients that I knew had a problem you know, that she had cured with a 12 step recovery program. And she had been in this program and stopped drinking. And I thought, well, I need to call her. Well, I called her. She said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get you some help. I didn't hear back from her. And I thought, well, I'm going to die. Like I need help now. So I Googled 12 step recovery. I found a meeting where my husband would be at work and my daughter would be in school. And now I was sneaking drink. I went from sneaking drinking to now I'm sneaking going to recovery meetings. And the first meeting I walked in scared to death, I sat on my hands because I now had tremors and I was so scared. I sat on my hands. I didn't want anybody to see me shaking. And I sat in between a nun and a cowgirl. And I thought, what kind of a place is this? Then all of a sudden people started to share and these women shared these stories. And I felt like I'm not alone. Like they understand me. That person's telling my story. She's telling part of my story. Like I heard hope. And 
slowly but surely day by day, I started to get my spiritual connection back to who my higher power, who I call God. I started to develop um, my emotional resilience a little bit more through journaling and therapy. I started to read books. I started to listen to podcasts. I started to go to the gym. Even when I was in pain, I would work out my upper body instead of, you know, doing things on my leg. If my leg hurt too bad. Now I had been trying to work out through a lot. I would go to the, I was in the, you know, gym in my wheelchair. I had dumbbells in the hospital. I had a lat pull up, you know, bar over the hospital bed, but when I'd gotten so bad and deep in despair and, and I was not even able to work out. And so I slowly, but surely started getting my physical, mental, emotional, spiritual resilience was starting to, to rebuild it, but it wasn't like I just have it. And now I'm all better. It, this is something that I work on every single day because look, a lot of people think I'm, I'm really positive or I'm super motivated and I'm not, I mean, there are days that I sit in the car in the parking lot and look at the gym. And I'm like, I know I got to go in there, but it'd be so much easier just to scroll through Instagram right now. And I'm like, no, Amber, I'm going to do it. Why? I think about my why. And my why is because when I work out, I know I can, I have more confidence. Um, it makes me feel better mentally. It releases endorphins at combat pain. You know, all of this because of being an athlete. Um, but there were so many times when I couldn't go and work out and I couldn't walk on my own and I couldn't drive to the gym. So the minute I ever have a thought like that, I go, I get to go do those things. But I think it's, for me, um, resilience isn't just about physical. It's not just about like, um, one singular thing. It is, it's, it's kind of like transformation. It, it takes over your whole life and resilience. It takes mind, body, and spirit. And so I wake up every now there is like, I have non-negotiables. My non-negotiable is every morning. I have some me time with God and then me time with my journal and my writing and my reading. And, you know, I wake up before everyone else in the, so I can have my time so I can really get the day started. But then I also have my family time and I have my time with my daughter at night and we have our gratitude practice together every night before she goes to bed. And so it's these little small decisions that you make every single day that can end up changing the rest of your life. It's the, the little perspe perspective shifts that you make every single day that give you a different outlook on life. And I really don't think that it's our circumstances that define us. I think it's our resiliency that defines who we are. Your, your wise woman, Mother Teresa embodied in Cindy Crawford. This is something I need to write your bio better. <laughs> Dan, you just, I love you. You always make me laugh. That's eight, the seven, thing. 8,760 8, hours in every single year. So let's wind up. So when you speak, when people read your book, 
when I've been thumbing through your book, every page is a mirror because it allows us to actually pause and say, okay, how does this relate to me? It's well-written, you're, you're, you're powerful. So how do people get a hold of you and how do they know where you are? Because you're one of the more active speakers, not just a podcaster, but you're on every, you're, you're so busy. And now that we have let down the, the mask mandate and the vaccination that never worked anyway, we're back together belly to belly in these social environments. How can Thank we track goodness. you? How can we track you? How can we join your tribe? Oh, well, I would love to give um, your amazing audience a free gift. I have a downloadable playbook, which, because I want people to really be able to get some tangible tools that they can take with them. And it's my five part pacer method that really teaches you to tap into your superpower resilience because we all have it. And if you just text me the word grit, G-R-I-T to 818-214-7378, you can get that free playbook. It's also me texting you back. So say hello, reach out and, you know, say hello. I'd love to connect with you. Um, and Amberly Lago. Like we got to have that. Wait, there's more. Wait, there's more. If you text me right now, you'll get the Ginzu knives. Probably not, but keep going. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Tell me that you're a friend of hands and I'll throw in an extra surprise. Well, I've sold, <laughs> I've stolen so many towels over the years from Rich Carlton's and Marriott's. Maybe I could send them down to Texas and you could start giving those away because they've been very, 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 very important to me in my career. Oh my goodness. All the bags of soap and shampoo. I think I could team up with you. This is going well. Oh, this is going good. Um, yes, and you know what? You can find me at amberlylago.com. Hang out. And uh, you know what? Uh, all the shenanigans on Amberly Lago Motivation on Instagram. So any of the behind the scenes. And you know what? Take a screenshot of Dan's podcast and tag us because I want to see it and I'll share it in my story. Absolutely. Do that for sure. In fact, I need to do that right now. Smile. <laughs> Here we go. You are, you are so awesome. I love you. You're so amazing. <laughs> I can't wait to see you again. And we're on the program again in a couple of days. Obviously this is evergreen, so we won't mention the date, but I always look forward to seeing you and being in your presence. You really lift up everyone. And uh, let me just remind the world that men, as a professional speaker, men can be role, role models to men, but women like Amberly Lago can be role models to both men and women. Because you, my dear friend, you actually can get men to do other things that men can't get us to do. Mm. And uh, I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate your example. I appreciate your, your presence and being present at every moment. Of all the people I've met, you're exactly the same off stage as you are on stage, the same on camera as you are in live. <laughs> oh, it's been an honor to hang out with you. One of the oh. interviews I've done on my podcast, but every word mattered. Thank every, you. Every, every bit of wisdom changed a life. Thank you. Thank Love you. 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 Love Thank you. you so much. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks. The views and opinions expressed on the Power Players podcast do not necessarily reflect those of KUTV or Sinclair Broadcast Group.